0: And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Gary Marcus. Gary Marcus is a professor of psychology and the director of the Center for Child Language at New York University. He has written for the New York Times, Wired, Discover, and the Wall Street Journal, edited the Norton Psychology Reader, and is the author of three books about the origins and development of the mind and the brain. His new book is Guitar Zero. Please give a warm welcome to Gary Marcus.
1: This book tour has been by far the most fun that I've ever had on a book tour. One of the reasons that it's so fun is because every city that I've gone to, I've gotten to play with local musicians. So I don't just read, I get some people to play. Um, this book is by Barrett Taglarino right here. It's one of the books. Yeah, give him a. Now I see why. The crowd is, is so large. It's <laughs> Thank you, Barrett. Um, so th- this is a wonderful book. It's a little bit over the level of what I will pull off tonight in front of you, perhaps, but it's a fantastic book, um, and that's why I got in touch with him, and I'm going to allow him to uh, open the set tonight. Taglarino. all right so um, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about the book guitar zero starting with title, um, which is a play on words in two ways, uh, and depending on your age, you will get one or both of them, or perhaps neither. Um, the, the first play on words is it's referring to ground zero, um, and the fact that when I started, I had absolutely zero talent, and that's really, strictly speaking, an arithmetical uh, rounding up. Um, I, in truth, I started with negative talent. So... Um, <laughs> you laugh, but it is true. One, one of my first uh, musical memories was in fourth grade. I discovered my mom had a recorder in a, in a drawer, um, and I took it out, and I said, can I learn to play this? And she found someone in the neighborhood to give me lessons, and they sent me to the very difficult task of playing Mary Had a Little Lamb, and that song became my Waterloo very quickly. <laughs> uh, nobody had ever informed me that notes have different durations. In hindsight, I think that was the problem, is I didn't realize that notes had different durations, so I knew the sequence, but I didn't know anything about rhythm. And uh, rhythm has sort of been a recurring uh, challenge for me. But the teacher very quickly realized that I had no sense of rhythm, but had, she had no sense of teaching, and it didn't occur to her. <laughs> it didn't occur to her that that was possibly a remediable problem. She, I think A lot of music teachers, not all certainly, but a lot of music teachers are looking for the next great star. And I think it was pretty apparent after like two lessons that I was not going to be the next great star. And and she didn't want to waste her time with people who weren't. And so she said, truthfully but rudely and not very helpfully, that my talents lay elsewhere. all true. I, in hindsight, I wish he had said, let's work with quarter notes and eighth notes. We'll, you know, we'll come back to this difficult song later. Um, but, but she didn't. And so I gave up for a little while. And then I went to drama camp, and it turned out to be musical camp. Uh, this was, I think, the summer later. And there was an audition, and you had to sing um, with a, a accompanist, which I had never done before. And I kept singing faster than the accompanist, who would go even faster, and I would try to, you know, I don't even know what I was doing, but it went faster and faster and faster. And then the next day, um, the, the roles in, in the show came back. And they had made three very short roles just for me, all speaking and not singing. So that was my, <laughs> my, my early musical. So you can see why I say it's sort of rounding up to say I started from zero. Um, there's also the miracle piano I tried in graduate school. I don't know if anybody knows this. It was a keyboard that you could hook up to your computer. Um, to your Macintosh, and it would give typing tutor kind of lessons, and again, rhythm was the real problem. So I learned where all the notes were on the keyboard. That's not so hard. It's much harder on guitar. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, But it's not that hard on the piano keyboard, and I learned maybe even the notes to Mary Had a Little Lamb. But you had to play them in the right time, and eventually I gave up on that too. So that is one meaning of the title of the book. The other is Guitar Hero. And I'm guessing that you know, everybody under the age of 40 knows immediately um, that there's this video game called Guitar Hero, which I think of as the dumbest video game in the entire planet. It requires considerably less sophistication than Tetris, for example, where you have to do two-dimensional <laughs> rotation and decide, is this going to fit in there? And all you do in Guitar Hero is Dots fall from the screen, different colored dots. And you have a plastic guitar, which is kind of pathetic in its own way. And you have to press the right button at the right time, corresponding to you know the red dot falls to the bottom, and you press the, the <coughs> red button. And it's very easy for ordinary people. But for people with rhythmic impairments, as, as me, it's not so easy. So the first I played Guitar Hero 3, to be uh, uh, technical about it, <coughs> a colleague of mine said, oh, it's a super fun game. And I could not figure out why he thought this was fun. For me, it was torture. I kept playing the song Slow Ride by Foghat over and over again, and what happens is the dots fall from the screen, and if you play the notes in time, then it sounds like you're playing the song, which is kind of an exciting feeling. But it was unknown to me when I first began, because instead, if you don't play the notes at the right time, what happens is that uh, the crowd starts to boo, and I became (laughs) very familiar with that phenomenon. And if, you, if there's enough booing, eventually a giant, a giant word fail comes up on the screen. <laughs> so I put it in a closet, despite wanting to be musical. My whole life, I really did want to be musical. I always spent all of my disposable income on CDs and then eventually like fancy audio equipment and stuff. So I always loved listening to music. And I'm a scientist, as, as you probably realize. And as a scientist, I felt kind of lame that I could hear the music but not really understand it. So I always wanted to be able to make music. Um, But the game went off to the closet. I couldn't do that. And then my wife played a similar game called Rock Band 3. My wife wife actually has musical talent. And so she played with some friends, and they had been playing for like three months. And she played the drums, which she had never played before. And she got like a perfect score or something like that. She was very excited about it. She came home. She told me about it. So I got the game Guitar Hero out of the closet. Um, The theory being that I was pushing 40, I was playing video games by myself and a college professor. This was a very embarrassing combination. (laughs) So I thought, well, maybe I can suck my wife into playing a video game, and so out out came Guitar Hero. And she actually helped me get through that first song by giving me better feedback than the game did, which mostly just consisted of telling me when I was late and when I was early and, and, and so forth. And so I actually made it through slow ride, and having failed it like 15 times, it was very exciting. And video games are really good about making each thing a little bit harder, which is a great principle in education in general. I always challenge the student, not so where something's impossible, but it's a little bit harder than what they could do. And so eventually, I made it through all of the songs on the first level and all of the songs on the second level. And then I looked to see what you'd have to do for the third level. And you'd have to learn all over again what to do with your fingers. And I was like, this is silly. If I can do this with the game, maybe I can do it with a real guitar. And it so happened that. I had a, um, it was at the end of the summer, and we were going to go up to a family cottage in my wife's family, and I decided I was going to spend the last two weeks of the summer trying to become musical, and I would just see what happened. I wasn't sure it was going to work, but I decided I would give it my best shot. I actually brought a keyboard and a guitar. I fell in love with the guitar. Um, I practiced for six hours a day. At the beginning, I was pretty dreadful, um, but by the end of the two weeks, I sort of started to sound faintly musical. So, that's where the title comes from, is this game was kind of a, a gateway drug uh, to the real thing. And of course I had zero talent. Now, one of the reasons <coughs> that I did all of this is that I study for a living how children learn language. And one of the things I knew from that is that we used to believe in an idea called critical periods. And that idea is you have to learn things very early in life. Sometimes you hear, for example, the phrase zero to three. The idea is if you don't learn something by three, you're never going to learn it. The other version is you have to learn it by puberty. You know, once your hormones kick in, you start thinking about sex, you'll never learn anything again. (laughs) And I don't want to say that's totally false, but... It also turns out, I was realizing from my field of language acquisition, that occasionally some adults actually succeeded in learning second languages just fine. I mean, not every adult can do that. But this whole idea that it was just impossible after you were 15 or three or whatever it was, was starting to deteriorate. Um, And so I'm gonna read a little passage from the book about the early days in in my journey. At the outset of my journey, one study in particular gave me a glimmer of hope. For years, the strongest evidence for critical periods came not from humans, but from animals. To properly (coughs) establish the existence of a critical period, one needs to do an experiment in which young animals are raised in a carefully controlled environment. In the literature on critical periods, one of the most influential experiments came from raising barn owls. Barn owls, as it happens, are a little bit like bats. They rely heavily on sound to navigate. At the same time, however, they can see better than bats typically can. And one of the first things they do after hatching is to calibrate their eyes with their ears, lining up what they hear with what they see. This allows them to use sound cues to help them navigate in their dark nocturnal world. But the exact mapping between their eyes and their ears can't be hardwired at birth, because the navigation depends on the exact distance between the two ears, and that distance changes as the animal grows. So there has to be some kind of evolutionary system for them to calibrate their eyes with their ears. Well, how do they manage to do that? The Stanford biologist, Eric Knudsen, explored this question by raising owls in a kind of virtual (coughs) reality world. This was before we had um, digital cameras to make this easy, so instead he used prisms, which. Excuse me, shifted everything by 23 degrees. So, this disrupted the owl's normal capacity to see and forced the owl to adjust its internal map of the visual world. The earlier the prisms were installed, the better the owls would do. So, this seemed like evidence for critical period. Young owls could easily learn to compensate for the 23 degrees of distortion, but the old owls couldn't. If that were the only paper I had read, I would have given up on the guitar right there. I was 38 years old. And, you know, with no talent, I might have said, forget it. But I soon stumbled on a more recent study, less widely known, in which Knudsen discovered that the older owls weren't entirely hopeless after all. Although Knudsen's original results still stand, adults definitely aren't as flexible as the baby owls. Adult owls can often get to the same place, so long as their job is broken down into smaller bite-sized steps. And that's kind of the theme of the book. Um, Adult owls couldn't master 23 degrees of distortion all in one go, but they could succeed if the job was broken down into smaller chunks a few at 6 degrees another few weeks at 11 degrees and so on so by breaking it down into that incremental process the older owls could do what the younger owls could do so i continued maybe i didn't have talent and maybe i was old or at least no longer young but i was willing to take it slow could adult owls or could adults i'm not now could adults like me acquire new skills if we approached them a bit by bit owl style and so the first chapter ends with a guitar in one hand and a laptop in the other. I set out to understand the limits of human reinvention and how humans, young and old, talented or otherwise, become musical. And so that, that was the beginning of my journey. Um, there was another uh, great book about guitar that I read called Crash Course Acoustic Guitar um, about a week into this journey that really broke things down into the kind of uh, steps that an adult owl could do. So like one chord the first day and two chords the second day, um, taking things really slow. In the book, and I'll be happy to take questions uh, in a little bit, I do things like I pr- approach the guitar from the perspective of an engineer, saying, what are the things that actually make learning guitar hard? Now, some people learn guitar when they're two years old and don't really remember what they go through. One of the advantages of being a cognitive scientist at the age of 38 is you can kind of understand what's going on, what you're going through. And so I found that a lot of musicians really enjoy this book because it reminds them of what they did or helps to explain what what they went through. So one of the things, for example, I talk about is the fretboard as opposed to the piano keyboard. So on a piano keyboard, everything is laid out very neatly. Once you know the basic rule for how to find the 12 notes in the basic octave, you know how to find middle C and then you can find the same notes in any octave. Whereas the guitar, every string is different. So every string has um, a C note, in fact, more than one C note. Um, every string has a C note, however, in a different place. Uh, and as I talked about in my last book, Kluge, that's a recipe for disaster for human memory. So <laughs> in computer memory, everything has a particular spot in which it's stored. And computers can store tables with no problem. You could store a multiplication table or a cosine table or whatever. But if you've ever tried to memorize a cosine table, you'll quickly realize that the human brain is not good at remembering a bunch of numbers that are similar to one another. And learning the fretboard is a little bit like that. You've got a C on each and a D and so forth, a C sharp on every string, but they're all different. And so they blur together in the same way as your parking spaces blur together if you park in the same garage every day. There was a whole Seinfeld episode about not being able to find one's parking space in in a garage. It's the same phenomena when you try to learn the fretboard fretboard. You're like, I know the notes around here somewhere. <laughs> so one section of the book is, is about uh, the the challenges that beginners face. Um, I talk about what experts know that that beginners uh, don't know, things like that. I went around and interviewed a lot of musicians. Um, I also interviewed a lot of teachers of music. One of my favorite parts was just talking about different teachers and what made them good teachers. So a Suzuki teacher, for example, in Brooklyn, and I thought it was a brilliant teacher for a number of reasons. I think her biggest insight was that If you're talking about a young child learning, the most important thing is not the practice that happens in the classroom when the child comes once a week or something like that, but what happens in the home. And so um, she's really, really good about creating an environment where the kids and the parents aren't at odds. So one of her her sayings was uh, to the parents who who she gave separate classes to, never, ever correct your child unless they've made the same mistake at least three times. And so um, she set up an environment where the child... Uh, doesn't feel like she's being tortured or he's being tortured by the parent. I think this is uh, critically important. Is that my 10-minute signal right now? Um, So uh, I think if it's my 10-minute signal, then maybe what I will do for you now, I will take questions on anything you like. Sorry, I'll say one more thing. Um, Another fun experience, and maybe you can ask me about a little bit more later, is I went to a rock and roll summer camp. Um, And the deal there was... Um, the camp was with 11- and 12-year-olds, so the deal, first of all, for me was I had to get picked to be in a band, and that, the, <laughs> the camp director suggested to me that I should learn to play bass because there were never enough bass players, so I had, I had three weeks to practice my bass, and then I showed up in camp, and um, it was sort of like high school or a grade school kickball, you're like, pick me, pick me, picking. Eventually, they, some of the kids allowed me to be in their band. And the, the deal there was on Monday, you meet your bandmates, you start writing a song, and by Friday, uh, you play that song on stage. It was going to be my first ever live performance. And in particular, all the kids bring their parents. I brought my parents. Um, so, I won't tell you too much about that now, but I'll say that a punchline of that is perhaps the kids and adults are differently abled. So the kids were much faster on their fingers than I was, but I, as an adult who listened to a lot of music and thought about composition and so forth, actually helped to put the song together. So I found some way that I could, as as they say in baseball, that I could help the ball club, and that was um, quite delightful. Um, We don't have a whole lot of time, and I know you want to see if I can actually play after all this (laughs) three years later. I mean, introduce... uh, my friend Greg Bryant, who is a fellow psychologist, uh, fellow uh, musician much more experienced than I, um, and the three of us are going to play a little tune. One, two, three.
2: to ask the professor how music impacts your mood. Does it raise it up, or what's it do for you?
1: People sometimes use music as a kind of self-medication. I used to think of the iPod as being the ultimate self-medicator. So sometimes people play music to make themselves happy. I think sometimes people, when they're sad, get a kind of comfort from hearing other people that sort of empathize with them, uh, or maybe retrospectively empathize with them. So I think music can move mood in different ways. When I play with other people live, maybe not preferably with an audience, but in a, in a uh, quiet room, um, I feel ecstatic. I think it's a, it's a wonderful, exciting feeling. There's a guy named Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, um, who has a book called Flow, which is about this idea of like losing track of time and just totally being in the moment. And, and when there's no crowd around, but we're doing the kind of thing that we're uh, just doing now, I often reach that flow state, which I think is beyond happy. It's, it's you're, you're transported. and That's part of why I keep doing this.
0: Uh, my name is Zoe. I used to be his Pilates instructor in New York. I wanted to, my field work is bo- the body. He's
1: thanked in the book, I should tell you. <laughs> They're helping keep me in one piece so that I could do the physical part of guitar.
0: And I actually wanted to ask you about that. Because I saw the three of you moving differently when you're playing, and especially the guy that started opening for us. Uh, In both songs, you move differently. And I saw you moving differently. And I saw you moving also. And there are three different instruments. I mean, it's the guitar, but three different types of guitar. So I would like to know what you discover about your body and the connection between the mind and the body when you're playing. And also wanted to ask the two other members of your little band here, uh, where do they feel the music? Uh, first, in the body or in the brain or in both at the same time.
1: I can't answer for them. I'll go yeah. first, and I don't know if we've got mics for them. Um, they might just have to shout out. But um, <coughs> one thing that I've noticed is that I'm much more aware of my body, um, having played guitar. So I've been doing some other things too, uh, like I have been playing uh, playing around with a unicycle for the first time in about 20 years, um, and. I'm a better unicycle rider than I was in college because I'm more aware of my body and and sensitive to what I'm doing. So that's definitely been one side side benefit of the guitar is it makes me more aware. I wouldn't say that I have the best posture playing uh, guitar. And it probably deteriorates even more when people are watching and I'm a little bit nervous. Um, But that's certainly one of the things that guitar teaches you. Uh, I think Suzuki guitar is especially good about teaching uh, people to really be mindful of their posture. I don't know if you guys uh, can jump in. for one, I, I teach my students to always tap their foot when they're playing. And, uh, and I also tell them, the ones who are reluctant to move, that they should go ahead and move to the beat of the song, even if they feel a little
2: bit self-conscious about it at first, because they're not really faking it. They're not posing. They just have to step into that zone
1: where they are experiencing the rhythm. And... Uh, when people see a performer dancing and, it's, and they don't think he's a poser, it's because he's not doing it to put on a show,
2: he's doing it to really feel the groove of the music. And so I do it whenever,
1: whenever I play. I try to keep the pulse happening. So it's a, it's a really important part. I feel like I tap my foot when I play. That, yeah. I didn't do that when I might have done that tonight. Did I do that? It's probably mm-hmm. out of my control, but, um, but I noticed that I started doing that a little bit later. I've been playing for about 30 years and I, I don't think I did that in the beginning and, I, and now I do that a lot more, but I feel like I've I just thought about it now. I haven't really thought about it too much before, but I feel it's sort of where my body is moving, I think. I can actually feel it in my arms. I don't feel it in my legs much even though it's going. So it's a strange, it's a strange thing, um, but it's definitely an embodied experience to play. And, and when you play with other people, you tend to synchronize with them. And I've, I've played in rock bands a lot. I currently playing a band. And sometimes when we're rocking, we're rocking together. It's because we're doing it together. So we're synchronized in our playing and we're synchronizing our bodies. And I think if bands do that and they synchronize their bodies better, they're probably going to be um, better performers as a group, I would say. I'll I'll just add one thing to that. Some of you may have seen there was a profile about me in the New York Times uh, a few weeks ago, and it ends uh, with a true story, which is that I went to a wedding in December, and I danced, which is not the first time in my life that I had danced, but because I've been working so hard on rhythm with a guitar, I was actually able to dance in time, and that was a first for me. (laughs) And and for the the first time in my life, people actually complimented me on my dancing, so there you go.
0: Once you developed your learning system for the adult owl that uh you found as a as a successful way to take these steps, what still was the most challenging of the things you had to learn? What were the hard things that remained that took a time to get over?
1: Surprisingly, counting is very difficult. I always thought of myself as um, gifted mathematically, but there's so many things going on when you're a beginner that keeping track of where you are is hard. I actually wrote an iPhone app called Chatternome. that's a metronome, but it says the beats out loud, so it goes one and two and three. Um, you can vary, like uh, make it skip beats and ch- change the speed and so forth. That's been really helpful in ha- having me internalize a sense of rhythm. Um, but there are tons and tons of things that, that I'm still working on. Um, one of them is actually fr- from his book. Is, is, um not that it's the only book that talks about it, but he, I think he has a very nice explanation of how to solo and change the scale that you're playing with, for example, uh, as the chords in the song uh, change. So that's called playing the changes. And I'm a little bit too shy to do it in this kind of situation. But a lot of what I've been working on lately is basically that, is trying to um, make my note selection reflect what else is going on in the song instead of just playing the same set of notes across the chords. So, there's lots more to learn. In fact, even the best people that I interviewed, like Pat Matheny, are still learning. He keeps a diary um, after every show, seven or eight pages. And he writes down, you know, Cleveland, this worked, this didn't. And so when he goes back to Cleveland the next time, he's like, this didn't work, and I'm going to fix this, and I'm going to improve that. So, um, most of the best musicians that I met said, you know, I'm still constantly learning stuff. So, I'm, you know, there, and they're there. but. I think everybody that's passionate about music, it's partly because you are learning new things. It's, it's like this limitless vista. Um, And so I I feel like I get the same hit of dopamine when I learn something about music as from science. When I do the science, I'm learning, hopefully, things that are new to mankind. And when I'm learning things about music, they're just new to me. But it's still that kind of joy of discovery.
2: song you played, was it an improvisation? Or if not, how long did it take you to learn it?
1: Uh, It was an improvisation. And so I guess the answer is either uh, three years or three minutes. I mean, we we, we rehearsed for about seven minutes uh, beforehand and never played. So I've, in my um, learning, I've really focused on improvisation as a way to kind of understand music better. So rather than memorizing songs sort of like paint by numbers and not really understanding them, I've really focused on trying to understand the components of music so that I can make stuff up like that. And it's a real thrill to be able to do it.
0: I'm wondering what other sort of side effects came from learning music in areas that are surprising to you, right? Like where it's led to revelation somewhere else.
1: Do we have time? I'm going to read you one more passage from the book. So um, the epilogue of the book talks about sort of two unanticipated benefits. One is making a lot of new friends, um, two of whom I have here tonight, um, and a whole bunch of whom I I sort of uh, shout out to. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit more. This is the last part of the book. I may cry. Um, I think I've done it enough times. No, seriously. Um, I think I've done it enough times that I won't, but here we go. The second unanticipated fringe benefit is a whole new form of expression. Not necessarily as precise as the written word, but in some ways vastly more powerful. In the middle of my second year of efforts to play guitar, I began to have enough confidence to write, start writing songs, and one week went to my weekly lesson, ready to write first. A week later, I knew I'd be visiting my Uncle David, perhaps I feared for the last time. David, who had recently retired as a professor of education in North Carolina, had always been an inspiration to me, and for the last several years, he'd been quite ill. I knew instinctively that the song I was to write had to be for him and about him. Roger, my teacher, asked me to free associate, so pen and paper in hand. I recalled how David had brought me math books when I was just a few years old. I think he was the first person outside my immediate family to take me seriously as an intellectual. And I remembered how my mother as a child couldn't pronounce his name, leading to a nickname by which he's known in the family to this day. More than that, I tried to capture his life's work as a moral teacher and as a person who never ceased to struggle to find a spiritual path. I played a few minor chords that I thought captured David's seriousness of purpose, and within an hour, Roger had helped me to craft the song into a beautiful, coherent whole. The refrain, Uncle David struggles, struggles with the meaning of what it is to be a Jew, was set to some rapid chord changes, A minor to D minor and back in the space of two measures, and then on to E7 and back to A minor, that I wouldn't have dreamed of trying a few months earlier. As I flew to North Carolina, I knew the song was good, but I didn't know if I'd be able to play it in public. I was nervous the whole time, and I didn't tell my mother that I was thinking of doing this, lest I dash her hopes if I chickened out. On the last night, my mom and I spent in North Carolina, the whole family, David, his wife Elaine, I should say the book is dedicated to David and Elaine. Their daughter, her husband, and the grandchildren gathered, and somehow, with the aid of an old Martin Parlor guitar from 1934, that I borrowed from my cousin's husband, (coughs) I performed the song, making not more than two or three mistakes. David gave me a hug, the biggest he'd ever given me, and with just the right mixture of praise and irony, described me as a nascent Bob Dylan. (laughs) Later that night, after everyone else had left the party, David and Elaine had the deepest conversation we'd ever had. In the morning, my, my mother and I flew back north. Five weeks later, David was gone. I can't help but cry as I write or read these words. But I also know that writing that song for David connected to me one last time in a way that nothing else I could possibly have done—nothing uh, else I could have possibly done ever could—and for that I am grateful in ways that words alone could never express. And that's the end of the book. <clears throat> you mentioned in the beginning um, that as we get older, it's, it's better to take smaller bites and learn, try to learn, focus on—I guess—smaller pieces of information and. Programs and that work that way. What other things did you discover about that made it easier to learn for an older person? I think the most important actually starts with that. It's, it's sort of a variation on that theme, which is that oldest, older people, adults, have to cut themselves slack and often don't. So I think a lot of adults, because they do know the musical traditions, wanna sound like Santana the first night out. And it's (laughs) not gonna happen. I mean, I'm here three years, I still don't sound like Santana. Um, And you have to accept that and you have to say, it's okay that I'm gonna take this bit by bit. Little kids don't really have that problem. They don't know the musical tradition for one thing, and they're not as focused on the outcome. They enjoy the process. So the little kids are happy to just play the same riff over and over again until they get good at it, whereas adults often have outsized ambitions, and I think if you're going to start as an adult, you have to rein those ambitions in. So I think that's actually the most important thing an adult can do is, is to give themselves the space to take it slow and to enjoy the journey rather than destination. So I'm having a tremendous time, as you can probably tell, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to be Santana, and I know that, but the fact that I can sort of play in the game a little bit is really exciting to me. It f- fills a need that I had for a long time.
2: I'm a guitarist also, and I find that when I'm trying to remember a song that I've played many times before, I can only remember it if I think of
1: the first verse or the first like, chord. I can't start in the middle and keep on going. And I feel like that gives me a little bit of an insight into how my memory works. I was wondering what kind of insights you guys have learned through playing guitar about like, how, your, how your mind works. So, so the best classical musicians anyway, I don't know if people have done the studies on pop musicians, but it might be true for them too, Um, are very well aware of that problem, and so they don't practice from the beginning very much. So one person that I quote in the book uh, is a music teacher, and she tells, she's in New York City, as you'll be able to tell from the example, she tells her students to practice their songs on the subway away from their instruments in their head. And the idea is you practice in your head, and you figure out, Where do you lose attention? Where do you go wrong? And that's where you wanna practice when you're back at your instrument. So you're probably better from the beginning because you tend to start practicing from the beginning of the song, which is a natural thing that everybody does, but experts know better. So one of the things that experts develop is insight into where they themselves make mistakes. So coaches can help with that, too, but um, or music instructors or whatever. Um, but it's really important to realize where you're getting stuck. And often, for example, in a song, it might be that if you play the same verse uh, or the same passage three times that it's a little bit different on the third time, you might go into autopilot the first two times, um, or after the first two times, and then play it the same way the third time, even though there should be a change. So it's really important to develop a sense of, what's hard for you, where you get stuck, and so forth. And for most people, that means, don't always start the song from the beginning. Start it from the middle, or um, where where there's maybe a style change that you're missing, or things like that, where you're gonna lose attention. If you do that, you'll find that you can, in fact, come in, uh, in in different parts of the song, and that's certainly a valuable skill. So, um, I wanna thank, again, Greg Bryant, my fellow cognitive psychologist. (laughs) And Barrett Taglarino, my fellow music writer and music god.